0: Matthew chapter 5 when I was a volunteer firefighter I took a class in how to teach public fire safety education and the class taught us one thing and that was this teach only one thing and teach it positively and you know a lot of fire safety education is toward children. So a, a, for instance, would be something like this. If, if you don't want children to play with matches, uh, don't teach them, don't play with matches. Teach them, when you find matches, always give them to an adult. Like that'll work, but, but it's one lesson taught positively. That was what we learned. And that was 30-plus years ago when I learned that, and uh, I guess I, I remembered that one thing from that week-long class. As we... <laughs> yes, that's right, 40 hours at the National Fire Academy, and that's what I learned. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to come to a passage that is challenging, but it also tempts us to start to think about two different kinds of, of behavior, But I hope you see in the end that what God is teaching us is one thing, and he's teaching it positively. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect." Now, for those of you who have the uh, New International Version of the Bible, or perhaps some other newer translations, you may have found a few words missing from your text. And so, before I start the sermon, I'm going to have a prologue. And uh, in the words of one of my professors from college, this is for free. Okay? When he would get off topic and preach a little bit, he said, that's for free. So, a prologue is something you say before you say what you're going to say. And it sort of lays the groundwork for saying what you're going to say. And so a prologue, and the prologue is this. What is a textual variant? We're going to have a little theology class here. A textual variant is a difference in between two or more copies of the Scripture. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in the King James Version, in the New King James Version, they chose to include some words that were on a particular ancient Greek manuscript And the New International people chose not to include those words. Well, what's an ancient Greek manuscript? Well, that's when Matthew wrote these words the first time. Then he gave it to someone who said, I want a copy of that. And they copied it out. No photocopiers, no printing press. And so they copied it out. And then, and then one of that guy's friends said, hey, I want a copy of that, and he copied it out, and so on and so on, until there are multiple thousands of copies of pieces of the ancient text, okay? Some of them have what I read from the Gospel of Matthew. Some of them leave part of that out. Now, this is the stuff of which people criticize the Bible and say, how do you know that it belongs in the Bible, Well, the answer to this one is simple, okay? Um, Here is the New King James Version which follows the King James. Here's the NIV. In verse 44, you can see the difference between these uh, these two copies. Now, this is not about modern translation. This is about which old Greek copy is the right one, okay? So, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those. And you can see how the NIV uh, shortens that up. Now, we're left to say, well, which which should it be? Because obviously, this way here is a little tougher than this way in some regards, but you can also see that shortening it doesn't change the sense of it, right? There's no real doctrinal difference, so you could go either way and be fine. Fortunately, this is easily answered, because Luke puts the whole thing in, and nobody disputes the Luke text. And so we're going to consider the whole thing, because whether, whether Matthew recorded it or Luke, doesn't matter, Jesus said it, they both wrote down parts of it, and we're going to consider the whole thing today, because it really does flesh it out in some very very uh, um, plain ways for us, so we can get a hold of what Jesus was saying. So now let's read, let's read uh, Matthew 5 again here. Um, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Throughout this text, throughout Matthew 5, Jesus has, been, has a, made a series of statements. Now you've heard it said this way, But I'm telling you, here's the way it should be. Now, he quotes two different sources when he says, you have heard. One of the sources that he quotes is the Old Testament. But in some of the quotes, he says it the way the people of that day were saying it. And what they were saying was some of the Old Testament mixed in with some other things. And this is a prime example of that. Let's go back and look at the Old Testament law and begin to understand that godly love cannot coexist with hatred. Here's the actual law from the Old Testament. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, again, we, we look at Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Look what part they left out. As yourself. And then they added this piece, and hate your enemy. There is no place in the Old Testament that says you shall hate your enemy. This was was the way this was the way this was verbalized by the teachers of the day of Christ, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we ought to ask the question then, where did they get the idea that it was okay to hate their enemies? Well, they may have inferred it from a passage like this. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, those were essentially tribes of people, the people of Ammon or the people of Moab, people groups that became countries. The Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Deuteronomy records the instruction that God gave through Moses to the people right before they went into the land. And so they had all of the law about, uh, say, the, you know, the, the tabernacle and the worship and the priests and, and so on. And, and now this is added because um, it's going to tell us why. Because, why is, did God say this about the Moabites and the Ammonites? Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. As they left Egypt and were on their way to Israel, they came to this area where the Ammonites and the Moabites were, and they said, you can't come through our land and we're not going to help you. And God said, because they did that, I am going to keep them out of my system of worship to the 10th generation. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. They also hired Balaam as a prophet to try to curse the people. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all of your days forever. Now, that certainly sounds like... uh, being mean to an enemy, right? I wouldn't deny that. But it still doesn't say it's okay to hate all of your enemies. God put a restriction on several people groups who treated his chosen people poorly. And he also made it clear that as Israel entered the land, they would need to drive out of the land Wicked nations, which were already there. Here's one of the passages that talks about this. Um... You shall, not, you shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it's an accursed thing. When the people came into the land of Israel, God said, don't have anything to do with the people of that land and their idol worship. Okay? Now, it's awfully hard for us to grasp what mankind deserves. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in a perfect place and they had a problem-free relationship, and he said to them, don't eat from that tree because if you eat from that tree. Let's put it in its real context. If you rebel against me, if you sin against me, I'm going to cause you to die. In fact, what it says is, dying you shall die. In other words, there's going to be physical death, and later in the scripture we learn about spiritual death. God told them that. God was clear about that. They had every advantage you could possibly want with one restriction. And when they broke God's rule and rebelled, what did they deserve? Class? Death. But what could God do? What died? an animal died, and God took the skin and covered them. That was a picture of what was to come in the sacrifices that would cover sin. And it was a picture of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ coming to remove sin. God was gracious from the beginning, But what did they deserve? They deserved to die. And so when the people of Israel came into the the land of Israel and there were people worshiping idols, did those people deserve to go to hell? Boy, it's hard for us to say, yes, they did. Because every human being deserves to go to hell. None of us are born even like Adam and Eve were, without sin. We're born with a sin nature, and then at an early age we begin to make sinful choices of our own, and we all deserve this. And so when God chose to cut short the life of some people, he was righteous in doing that. And in particular, he told his people You do not have anything to do with these people because what will happen is you will be snared by those idols and you will be drawn away from me. God was gracious to his people and he was just to the people that were already there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was imprisoned during World War II, makes this comment. The wars of Israel were the only holy wars in history, for they were the wars of God against the world of idols. It is not this enmity which Jesus condemns, for then he would have condemned the whole history of God's dealing with his people. Now, what you need to notice, though, in the Old Testament was, yes, there were some times when God told his people to act in a way that brought judgment on others. That was God choosing to act. But he never told his people to be hateful to their enemies. In fact, just the opposite. God instructed his people to be loving or kind to all. Listen to this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. It's a very, I mean, today it would be if you see his car running down the road, you know, go stop it, bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you know, they put so much on it that it it kind of fell down and couldn't get up. And you would refrain from helping it. You No, you shall surely help him with it. That's a simple instruction, but it's clear. You're supposed to be loving. Here's another one. If a stranger, that means somebody outside of Israel, we would call them a foreigner today. If a foreigner dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. You're not bad to people just because you can get away with it. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see that? He says, look, you are foreigners in Egypt and they treated you good. And you know what it's like then to be treated bad as a stranger later on. So you don't treat people that way. What about this? We know this is a New Testament text, but it's from the old. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water. For so you will heap coals on fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. These are all Old Testament texts that talked very clearly about how they should treat people. The only time it was appropriate for them to go to war with or to be harsh to people is when God specifically commanded it, and then it was from him, not from them. So if we ask the question, how could they miss God's truth by so much? How could they come to a point at the time of Christ where they say, well, love your, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy? How do they get there? I think the answer to that comes from a text like 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the patience of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, "...as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the Scriptures." As we are learning in my Sunday school class, there are some things in the Scripture it takes a while to understand. We're looking at some things about the future. And there are some things that are hard to understand. And if you're not careful, you will take the Scripture and twist it, and the result will be your own destruction. People twist the Scripture till it suits them. And in the time of Christ, they wanted to hate their enemies. I don't know of anybody who wants to hate their enemy today. Certainly not here in Ferndale. God's Word contains some things that are hard to understand and many things hard to live, but twisting them will not remove them from God's expectation... Nor will it enable Christ-likeness. It just makes people feel better about themselves temporarily. And so we come to this conclusion. There is no godly justification for hatred. Now, I'm not talking about anger. God says be angry, but not sit, don't sin. There may be times when we are righteously angry. But hatred is when we act in ungodly ways toward people rather than a loving way. There is no godly justification for hatred. Godly love cannot coexist with hatred. And the second thing that we understand from from Matthew 5 is this. Godly love is a chosen behavior. Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you, and persecute you. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that people don't usually have warm feelings of affection for their enemies. Okay, The word for love, the the main word for love, and this word here in the Greek language, that's used in the New Testament is the word agape. And I don't often like to use Greek words because I'm not trying to display any intelligence here. But I think it's good for us to use the word agape love because then we say, okay, I know exactly what love you're talking about. There is a romantic love between a husband and wife, which is entirely appropriate. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this godly kind of love which The word agape is not necessarily defined real tightly in a Greek dictionary, but it's defined by scripture passages like this. By this we know or understand love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You want to know what agape love, what godly love, how it's defined? It's defined as sacrificing. And so I've created a definition here. Agape love is driven by the needs of others and is sacrificial in expression. It's driven by the needs of others. Agape love is not the kind of love where I have a warm feeling for someone, and so I think, oh, I just want to do something nice for them. Agape love is not driven by the fact that somebody does something nice for me. Oh, they did something nice. Oh, I just want to do something nice in return for them. That's not agape love. That may be a fine thing to do, and it may be part of agape love, but agape love is driven by the needs of others. What do you need? And that need results in me making a sacrifice. Agape love is driven by the needs of others and is sacrificial in expression. Enemies are not those who have earned our kindness by their good actions to us. Enemies are people who we dislike because of their actions. That's why God doesn't say, feel good about your enemies. He doesn't say, he doesn't hear command us, you must have warm feelings of affection for your enemies. He says, do you see your enemy? Do you see his need? Then sacrifice yourself to care for him. That's what makes this passage so powerful. Love is patient. He doesn't say the people whom you have warm affection for you should be patient toward. He said you should choose to act in agape love, which is patient and kind, not envious it doesn't parade itself around as though it's the greatest thing in the world. It's not puffed up with pride. It's not rude. It's not selfish. It's not easily provoked. It's not, it does not remember a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. It bears. It believes. It hopes. It endures. It never fails. This is the love Jesus is talking about toward enemies. Toward enemies. Now, I've done a little bit of counseling, and when I bring this passage up to married couples, they'll say, well, well, he's not my enemy. Is he your unfriend? There's a new word now. What's the word? What's the word? Friend me." Yeah? yeah, you know it. You young people know it. My friend to me. What's that? Well, it's a friendly enemy. OK. Here's the way you should pencil this out, class. God tells you to love your brothers in the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters. God tells you, tells husbands to love wives, tells wives to love husbands. He tells us to love our enemies. So who's left out? Who doesn't fit into one of those categories? That's the point. In fact, we could even understand it this way Jesus is saying, You really don't have a problem loving your friends, but I'm telling you to extend that love all the way to your enemies and everybody in between. Agape love is a deliberate, intelligent, determined love and invincible goodwill toward others. That's a quote from Kent Hughes. Boy, an invincible goodwill and invincible goodwill. And Jesus gives us three examples of what this means. And the first one is this. Say good things. I'll tell you what it's going to say in your notes. It's going to say, say good, do good, pray good. And I've said it that way so you'll remember it. Say good, do good, pray good. Say it with me. Say good, do good, pray good. You can remember that say good things to your enemies again uh, some of the some part of verse 44 is left out of matthew it's included in luke i say to you love your enemies bless that's the say good the word bless means to pronounce a blessing on those who curse you literally the word blessing means to speak well to say good this meshes completely with the basic rules of christian communication speaking the truth in love that is the basic rule of communication expanded here let no corrupt word no word that is that is sinful harmful hurtful tearing down let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers god says as we think about speaking to people those we have affection for, those we have disdain for, we should be saying, How, what can I say that is for their good and said in a kind way? How can I say good things? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. If you're trying to figure out what Edifying speech is; it doesn't include any of these. Okay, is that clear? <laughs> Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. If that is coming out, then it's not edifying. Do you know what the verse in between these two says? Anybody know their Bible that well? What does it say? And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for, for the day of redemption. Let your speech be upbuilding, encouraging, edifying, blessed, good. Let it not be wicked, because if it is good, it blesses the Holy Spirit. If it is wicked, it grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is grieved. He mourns when we speak evil of an enemy. You know the old adage if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all? That's not in the Bible. Did you know that? (laughs) What the Bible says is if you don't have anything good to say, figure it out, (laughs) find something good to say. Bless those who curse you. Man, that's a tough one. It gets worse. Do good things for your enemies. Say good, do good. Do good things for your enemies. The truth that we saw in the Old Testament there in Proverbs is repeated here in the New Testament. Repay no one evil for evil. If you think someone has done evil to you, That may be true. They may have sinned against you. But your response must not also be evil or or hateful. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself. This isn't just talking about doing people physical harm. This is talking about words. This is talking about... Everything that we do, if somebody wrongs you, they may be genuinely wrong, but you don't go back on them. Do not avenge yourself, but give place to wrath, give place to God's wrath, because vengeance is his, he will repay. Therefore, therefore, do you get that? Because of all of this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. You see, what God says is, some people are going to wrong you. I mean, in the day, Christ himself, people wronged him terribly. And he says, here's what you do. First of all, you don't take things into your own hands. Secondly, what you do is feed him, give him a drink, and in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I've heard heard some explanations about this heaping coals of fire and certain cultural things. I don't think it holds up because it starts all the way back in the book of Proverbs in that time frame. I think what it means is if you act in a Christ-like, godly, loving way toward your enemy, God will use that to change your enemy or to hold him accountable in the day of judgment. One of the two. When we are hurt... All we can think of is justice, but God wants to reach that hurtful person as much as he wanted to reach us. God wants that person to grow up, if they're a Christian, as much as he wants us to grow up. So if we're serious about serving God, we must act in love toward our enemies. The story of the Good Samaritan is about two groups of people who hated each other. The Samaritans, or people of Samaria north of Israel proper, were partially Jewish and partially other uh, other people groups, and so the Jewish people really hated them, and there were certain historical events that had happened that caused them to be hateful, and, and so there was these two groups. I mean, it would be like the, uh, the Jewish folks today and the uh, you know, the Muslim world around them. There's just, there's this hatred back and forth. And so a guy falls into a ditch uh, because he's been uh, attacked and hurt and, you know, he's laying there and here comes along a Samaritan and somehow, you know, uh, the Samaritan just says, you know what, that guy needs help. He needs help. He didn't consider what the relationship between them or where he was at. He just said, that guy needs help. And he helped him. He reached beyond his cultural hatred and prejudice to do good. And that's what God calls us to do. The third thing God calls us to do is to pray good. Pray good things for your enemy. Look what he says here. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Listen to the memorable way that that John Stott comments on this in his commentary on on Matthew. If they, the enemies, call down disaster and catastrophe upon our heads, expressing in words their wish for our downfall, here's the word that I love, we must retaliate by calling down heaven's blessing on them. Declaring in words that we wish them nothing but good retaliate by praying good things on Him. Wow. Jesus is our example in this. As we hear Him pray, Father, forgive Him, while they're nailing Him to the cross. The way it's written in the Greek language could even indicate that He said it over and over and over, like, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Oh, Father, forgive them. Maybe instead of crying out in pain, He cried out in forgiveness. And maybe that's what we have to do sometimes. Maybe it's not one word of forgiveness. Maybe it's over and over, 70 times 7. Think of prayer this way and enemies. Who needs more prayer than an enemy? Who needs the power of God to change them more than anyone? See, our our, our typical human way would be to to pray. Oh, yeah, we'll pray like James and John uh, saying, "Should we call down fire from heaven on them?" You know, we went into that into that city and they wouldn't. They didn't welcome us in. Should we call down fire from heaven? You know, we want to pray fire from heaven. But what we need to pray is, "Oh God, would you make that person godly for their sake?" do we really want people to go to hell? I mean, do you really want your enemy to go to hell? Because if you do, you don't understand your own sinfulness and how little you deserved salvation. You might look at an enemy and think, that guy doesn't deserve to go to heaven. Remember the prodigal son took took give me my inheritance now and went and wasted it and he came back and when he came back the father said oh I'm so glad to see you remember the older brother well he was mad he was mad here comes his brother back and his dad forgives and welcomes and brings him right back into the family he was mad because he didn't understand his own undeservedness. Did either one of those boys deserve their father's money? No. We need to understand that we don't deserve anything from God. We are born in sin. We deserve to go to hell. And so if God saves us, we should want that same thing even for an enemy. If, 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 if the person who we, we have a, an enemy relationship with is a Christian, we should want them to grow and know the peace and love and joy of Christ. Who needs the conviction of God about sin more than that person who acts sinfully? If Jesus could pray for his enemies, you can too, because where is Jesus? Where? In us. If Jesus is in you, you can pray for your enemies as well. Godly love cannot coexist with hatred. It is chosen behavior. Number three. Godly love demonstrates our connection to God, our familyhood, our sonship. Look at verse 45, Matthew 5. You should do this, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. I think it would be fair to to say that what God is intending there is to say that that you may be seen to be like your Father in heaven. He's not saying that you're going to earn your salvation. He's saying that you, if you truly are the sons of your Father in heaven, you will love your enemies. Why? Verse 45. For he, the Father, he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. He said that you should be like God. How does God act toward his enemies? Now, I understand There were some people that God sent to early judgment in the Old Testament. I understand that. But I also understand that God is gracious always until the judgment comes. God is a just judge, and he is angry with the wicked every day. Well, that doesn't sound like he's loving them. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 136 repeats that phrase 26 times. Do you know what you see if you read the Old Testament, especially uh, in the the prophetic books and you watch God talking to Israel? What you find is over and over God is saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. If you do that, there's going to be a punishment to his own people over and over and over. He is merciful, he is merciful, he is merciful. If you're sitting here today and you've never believed in Christ, God has been merciful to you right up until this day. And if you were to die tomorrow and stand before God and he said, you're not going to heaven because you've never believed in Christ, you would have no excuse because you sat here today and God said, listen, you're a sinner and you need to believe in Christ. God is merciful he is merciful. He was merciful in the Old Testament. He is merciful today. And here in particular, in Matthew 5, he talks about what we call common grace, the common blessing of God. He causes the sun and the rain to, to touch on everybody. He causes the rain here a little bit more than some other places. But maybe that's because we're extra righteous. I don't know. If God only caused the sun to shine and the rain to fall on those who were 100% righteous, we would all have a lot more dark, dry days. That's the truth. And so even us who are believers in Christ, God is gracious to us and he's patient with us and he leads us along because we get off the path and he says, come on back, and, and he helps us. And those who don't know him, he's pulling them, saying, come on, come on. And he's sending people to them to tell the message. God is gracious. The supreme act of God's God's, uh, love toward his enemies is recorded here. When we, us believers in Christ, when we were still without strength before we accepted Christ, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn 't die on the cross because we were all such wonderful people. He died because we were ungodly, for scarcely for, with a righteous man, for a righteous man would one die. yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. for if when we were enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. We were the enemies of God when Christ died on the cross. Right up until the moment that we believed in Christ, we were God's enemies. And yet God reached out and saved us. And that's how God acts toward his enemies. And that's why he says to us, you should love those people. He makes it real, real clear in 1 John 4. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God. That's agape love. He who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. If somebody says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And the word brother there is talking about fellow human being. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Love for love is man-like. Love for hate is Christ-like. That's the point that Christ makes in verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward is there in that? In other words, the people that are nice to you, you're nice back to them. Don't even the tax collectors do the same thing? Now, if you don't know the history of this time well enough to understand, let me, the, the tax collector was a guy hired by Rome, the oppressing nation over Israel, to collect taxes among the Jewish people and give to Rome. And then, of course, he had the right to collect his own living off the top of whatever he was collecting for Rome. And so, you know, and they had the authority of the Roman government behind them. So they would extort people. They would steal from people. Yeah, you have to pay this much. Well, I only paid that much last year. Well, I don't care. You got to pay this much this year. And they extorted people, so they were, they were, they were ill-thought-of because they were working for the oppressing government, and they were ill-thought-of because they were thieves. And he said, even a tax collector, when he walks down the street, says hi to his fellow tax collector. They're buddies. They hang out together. They have lunch. He says, if you do that, there's no reward in that. You could say, oh, I love everybody. Well, do you? Or do you just love those who love you? Because God didn't do that. God did not just love those who loved him because if he had done that, he'd have been alone in heaven with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because nobody here on earth reached up. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. Love for man, love for love is manlike. Love for hate is Christlike. If we would be like God, we must have the attitude expressed by this commentator, a man named uh, Lenski. Love indeed sees all the hatefulness and the wickedness of the enemy, but this simply fills the loving heart with the one desire and aim <coughs> to free its enemy from his hate, to rescue him from his sin, and thus to save his soul. That's the way the person who has godly love looks at those who are enemies. That's how God acted toward us, and that's how he wants us to act to others. Do you remember what I, what I said I learned about teaching fire safety education? What did it say? Teach one thing positively. Positively. I'm going to do that today. Here's the conclusion to this sermon. Love everyone. Now, I know that sounds kind of uh, not very hellfire and brimstone-ish. But it is God's message to us. Let me make it a little more plain. Love your husband or wife Whether they are friend or foe, or on a day that they might be that way, love the bully that is mean at school. Love the president, even when he does things you don't like. Love the people in the chairs around you, even if they're a little bit different. Love the guy who cuts you off in traffic. You're all doing pretty good till right then, weren't you? <laughs> You're going, check, check, check. Oh. Love the slow clerk at the checkout stand. Love everyone. Heavenly Father, I have not got this one down yet. And I ask for your help to do better and better day by day by day. Father, help me not to make any excuses. Help me not to to twist the scriptures like the people of Jesus' day did. Help me to aspire to be like you. Help this church to aspire to be like you. Father, we, we have to tell people that they're sinners. We have to confront people when there's wrong. But we have to do it in a way that is loving, that wants them to be like you. Help us to do that. Help us to take the word enemy out of our vocabulary as much as depends on us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.